Hello, welcome to the Bowling for Coup podcast, episode three. Today we're doing something a little different. In honor of Watchmen's new adaptation slash quasi-sequel series on HBO, I'm going to be looking back on the iconic graphic novel, providing some analysis, looking at the adaptation, and discussing the film adaptation with Cameron Hawkins of DualShockers.com. Please follow us on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and follow our Twitter, at BowlingForCoup. It's the same spelling as on the episode, but lowercase and no spaces, for updates on episodes. If you do this, it will make the work that goes into creating this slightly less depressing. Slightly. As far as the topic of the episode goes, Watchmen, my hope is to offer my own thoughts on the book, but also to hopefully introduce people to this groundbreaking text and inspire them to go out and read it for themselves. This is a comic book that elevates above the lowbrow entertainment that the genre is often critiqued for. It elevates itself to a status of high art, one which remains relevant to this day, as our fears of those in power grow stronger by the minute. While the history and intentions of the book may be familiar to a lot of listeners, it's best not to alienate newcomers, and so I offer an introduction for those unfamiliar with the towering masterwork that is Watchmen. In the 1980s, DC Comics acquired the rights to the catalog of one Charlton Comics, another classic publisher with a number of popular characters such as Captain Adam and The Question. Alan Moore, a British comics author at this point known for his work on 2000 AD and The Ballad of Halo Jones, and also known for his cool beard and hermit-like demeanor, was brought on by DC to create a new narrative featuring their recently acquired characters to work them into the DC universe. Moore and artist Dave Gibbons began work on story ideas. While it's not clear that this idea was initially Moore and Gibbons or DC's, it was eventually decided the project would become unrelated to the Charlton property, and therefore several of the characters were reworked to fit an entirely original story. Moore and Gibbons crafted a narrative which would serve multiple purposes which owe to its reputation as the greatest graphic novel ever written. It's dense with historical, literary, and musical allusions, repeated motifs, and mirror visuals. It is at once a satire of the superhero genre, a mystery story, a critique of 1980s culture and nuclear paranoia, an alternative history story, and a comic book which comments on comic books as a medium. The story begins in October of 1985, in an alternate version of the 20th century. The presence of real-life costume vigilantes since the late 30s and the accidental creation of Dr. Manhattan, a superpowered quasi-god in 1959, has dramatically shifted the socio-cultural, technological, and historical advancements made between 1939 and 1985. Electric cars and cigarettes exist. Eugenic experiments have resulted in the creation of genetically modified animals. Nixon is on his third term as president. America won the Vietnam War and have made it the 51st state and Cold War tensions have escalated to the brink of World War III due to the U.S.'s cockiness as a result of Dr. Manhattan ostensibly being on their side. Police strikes during the late 70s resulted in superheroes being outlawed, with the exception of Manhattan and another hero called The Comedian, who do black ops work for the government. The Comedian being murdered at the beginning of the story sets off the events that follow, as Rorschach, one of the few vigilantes left active and one of the most extreme, begins to investigate the murder, and we meet the other characters, rounding out with Night Owl, Silk Spectre, both of whom succeeded previous iterations of their superhero personas, and Ozymandias, a former super-turned-billionaire businessman and philanthropist who now heads a mega-corporation bearing his own name, Vite. As Rorschach investigates, a massive conspiracy begins to unravel, relating to the impending threat of nuclear holocaust. The story also spends time developing each of these heroes and the psychological profiles that would inspire someone to dress up in a costume and beat up criminals. Suffice to say, they're all pretty fucked. 
The plot is able to function as an effective superhero story while also reflecting on the genre as a whole, and providing a sort of satire on the concept of the hero in general. It acknowledges that in the real world, with gray moralities and difficult problems, the idea of a superhero would be terrifying. Having these damaged, reckless, sad people charged with protecting the world? Who'd want that? Hence the Latin phrase which bookends the novel, he custodiat ipsos custodis, or who watches the watchman. The story also contains supplementary material from within the book's universe, whether that be chapters from a tell-all memoir penned by a former superhero, to police reports, notes from the desk of Ozymandias, or newspaper articles, and these bookend each chapter, except for the final one. These are not entirely necessary, but do provide a good deal of world-building and are very entertaining to read. They also build upon the themes of the main text, and even provide clues on where the story is going that attentive readers may pick up on. The comic also famously features a story within a story called Tales from the Black Freighter, a pirate anthology comic which features a story called Marooned. On a first read-through, these may seem kind of superfluous and odd, but on repeated readings, which this book will get you to do because it's that good. It becomes clear even this recurring distraction serves as an allegory on the larger narrative and develops the same themes. Before we take a deep dive into this, let's talk some further history on what happened since publication and some more background on the other creators of Watchmen. Back in the 1980s, DC had entered a contract agreement with Moore and Gibbons that they make 8% of the earnings while this series was in print, and when the series was no longer being published for DC for over a year, the rights would revert back to them. Moore figured that since his comic was so weird, dark, and complex that it wouldn't be a big hit, he and Gibbons would be getting those rights back within no time. However, Watchmen nearly immediately became a phenomenon within the comics industry, and DC hasn't stopped milking that cash cow since. This does come with some positives. It's hard to imagine more keeping Watchmen as consistently in print as DC has. However, it also means his work wouldn't have been sullied with merchandising adaptations, or as Rorschach would call it, prostitution, when more in his work is almost designed to be corporate-proof and critical of such exploitation. Ozymandias himself is almost made of a joke for his exploitation of his superhero past for profit via self-help books, action figures, diet plans, and posters. Moore is quoted in the New York Times in 2006 as having said of the incident regarding DC, You have managed to successfully swindle me, and so I will never work for you again. Moore retains his status as one of the greatest comics creators of all time. Since Watchmen, he has penned other masterworks of this medium, such as V for Vendetta, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Miracle Man, From Hell, Batman the Killing Joke, Promethea, and an acclaimed run on Swamp Thing. Partially due to Watchmen, Moore inadvertently began the trend of edgy and realistic superheroes, a phenomenon he seems to resent along with fellow comic book icon and complete political opponent Frank Miller. Probably because lesser comic writers, you know, hacks, attempted to mimic Watchmen's style and edge factor with no respect to its originality or what it was really trying to say with its story. And while icons of the period have faltered, such as Miller, Moore remains a powerful author with some fascinating philosophies and ideas. You see what those bloody corporations do? They take your ideas and they suck them. Suck them like leeches until they've gotten every last drop of the marrow from your bones. Hey, teacup, why don't you chill out? Dave Gibbons' art in the nine-panel grid, inspired by Spider-Man co-creator Steve Ditko's art style, create a very rigid and cold feeling to the comic, and made possible the symmetrical framing of many panels or even whole pages, which are so imperative to the book. And when a splash page or a different panel style is used, it's for dramatic effect and stands out. The coloring by artist and writer John Higgins was completely against industry standards at the time. Frank Miller also accomplished this in Batman Year One, but rather than draining the color as Miller did, Watchmen opted for a secondary color palette that gave a real life to the grimy New York City portrayed in the book. 
The dull browns, sickly yellows, garish greens, and vibrant purples create the feeling of a disgusting, seedy 1980s New York that is washed out in neon light. And again, when a primary color is used, such as the blue glow from Dr. Manhattan's skin, it pops, creating an intense sense of otherworldliness to a character. Or highlighting an object, like the comedian's bloodstained smiley face badge, the iconic logo for the series, which juxtaposes its more standard bright yellow color with a stark vibrant red. Since the 1980s, Watchmen has become revered as not only the greatest comic book of all time, but simply one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, with Time Magazine placing it on its list of the top 100 English-language novels since 1923, when the magazine began. The only comic book to make the list, though they have since published a top 10 graphic novels, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. With all that fucking boring history out of the way, let's look at what makes the novel so special, starting with Moore's thesis to create a comic about comics. When I was younger and first discovered Watchmen, I wasn't sure what Alan Moore meant when he said Watchmen was a story intended to only be told in comics. I had not really come to understand Moore's understandable disdain at the mediocre adaptations of his genius work, nor could I wrap my head around the thesis that Moore had laid out for his comic. Terry Gilliam once called the work unadaptable, though he was talking about the runtime and the limits of special effects more than the story itself. As Zack Snyder's film version proves, special effects have caught up with Watchmen, and the effects in that movie still look good ten years later. The runtime could be solved by splitting the film into two or adapting it into a high-budget miniseries. The literal story is clearly translatable from page to screen, but as I've pondered this, I've come to understand what Moore really meant. To understand this part of Watchmen's genius, we first must examine one of its key characters, Dr. Manhattan. Named for the Manhattan Project, the big blue boy is the Superman of this world, though he's closer to a god. Transformed in a freak accident involving a test chamber which disintegrates him, his consciousness somehow survives, and using his PhD in atomic physics, he slowly reconstructs his physical form, taking on the appearance of a glowing blue Adonis. In this process, he masters psychic control of atomic structure, which allows him to do anything. Grow in size, teleport himself and others, create objects from nothing, disintegrate his enemies, survive space and never age or die, you know, everything. His very existence completely shifts the political balance of his world, and worsens US and Russian tensions during the Cold War, and advances technology decades ahead with electric cars, cigarettes, and clean energy resources. But he also causes humanity to suffer an existential crisis. Are they living in a post-human world? As a result of all this, he no longer feels a particular affinity for his government or other people, so much so that he disregards even human clothing on most occasions. He likes to hang dick a lot. The nature of the comic structure means we experience the book as Dr. Manhattan does. The story is often non-linear, much in the way Manhattan views the world, alternating between past and present constantly. The mirrored images early on and the allusion to where the narrative is going can be comparable to Manhattan's predictions of the future, and repeated readings mean we feel as Dr. Manhattan does. The end is already predetermined. We're all just going through the motions to get there. The comics medium also allows for us to see multiple panels at once, and then they are compiled in a volume, which means technically the story is always sitting there, complete, laying dormant. Just as Dr. Manhattan perceives all events, we perceive the story. It has already begun, preceded, and finished before we even pick it up. And the panels mean we can see what's ahead before it even occurs, just as he does. 
The narrative is also built upon symmetry and mirroring, with the narrative often seeming circular, something that you can only really appreciate in the comic form, as it allows us to flip back from image to image to see its synchronicity at will, such as the recurring symbol of the comedian's smiley face badge or the doomsday clock, which, by the way, are the same thing if you couldn't get obvious symbolism. Sometimes these are accidental, such as the Gale Crater on Mars in Chapter 9, which is known for resembling that smiley face, this was thought of by Moore almost by accident, revealing how sometimes even a work of genius is really the work of a coincidence or synchronicity. It's like turning air into gold. A miracle. The comic is noted for its highly detailed panels, which are more specialty despite him not being the artist of any of his works. He is known for his intensely wordy and detailed scripts which he gives to his artists, usually leaving a note like, but hey, if it doesn't work for you, we'll figure something else out. Artists usually don't take more up on this offer because frankly, his descriptions are so vivid and purposeful already that they know not to tweak it. This is also noticeable in his seminal one-shot, Batman the Killing Joke. These panels would be too on the nose if described in literature and too obscure to be noticed in film where everything moves so fast. The static panels of comics allow us to slowly notice things the more we linger, or to miss it on a first reading and notice it on a second, in a way which would be overwhelming and seem hacky in traditional literature, or would seem unnecessary in a film. A comic about comics should also contain allusions to comic book history. Try saying that a couple times fast. An interesting schism created by the existence of superheroes is that superhero comics quickly become unpopular and are now pretty obscure in the world of Watchmen. Superman and The Flash have become things only the greatest generation and early boomers remember. Since the genre was intended to be escapist, it became unfashionable when superheroes became a real-life phenomenon and something of a public nuisance. Hence, comics which went out of fashion in the 50s in real life, like pirate, sci-fi, western, and horror comics, are the industry standards in Watchmen. Hence, the pirate comic I mentioned earlier, Tales of the Black Freighter. The weaving in and out of this comic within a comic feels appropriate here, whereas in literature it would seem indulgent, and in film it just really wouldn't work as a narrative device. It would have to be a film within a film to work with the illusion, and that wouldn't quite work because the comic, as a serialized medium, works in this context. Let me explain. It makes sense for the teen at the newspaper stand in Watchmen to be reading Black Freighter throughout the story because he is receiving follow-up issues just as the people reading Watchmen in its original format were, one piece at a time. Director Zack Snyder himself admitted the animated segment they created for the Black Freighter in the 2009 film version of Watchmen simply couldn't be included, except as a DVD special feature or spliced into the ultimate cut of the movie, which is way too long and stupid anyway. He said it just didn't feel fluid and interrupted the movie's momentum, but in the context of a comic book, this pacing makes sense. As a serialized narrative, uneven or slow pacing is expected. It gives the writers room to experiment and breathe. Film does not. Also note that Watchmen was written about a decade and a half before the birth of the long-form serialized TV drama we now have thanks to shows like Sopranos, Wire, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men. So, yeah, I know. Long-form is not exclusive to literature, but we're going to move on. There are also several other allusions to the history of different forms of comic books. From Silk Spectre's mother, who in this story is actually the original Silk Spectre, showing off a Tijuana Bible about her from the 40s. If you don't know, these were these little pocketbooks that were like the precursors to hentai, usually featuring comic book heroines or real-life celebrities in pornographic situations. One of the supplemental readings also mentions real-life comics legend Joe Orlando, who is credited in the acknowledgements at the start of the novel. It is also noted that DC, and we can presume Marvel, 
thank God, went out of business following the whole superheroes are real thing, and EC Comics, who in real life were publicly denounced and practically blacklisted for their gruesome horror comics like Tales from the Crypt, have become a successful publisher. In the world of Watchmen, the real-life superheroes are seen as so perverse in their presence that graphic comic books marketed at kids seem like the least of anyone's worries. As they should be. They're fucking comic books. Speaking of which, one of the supplemental readings excerpts from a tell-all book called Under the Hood, written by Hollis Mason, who in this book is the first and original Night Owl, explains he and several other heroes were straight-up inspired by comic books and pulp magazines to take up vigilante personas. This is funny considering the actual presence of glorified community watch guys who dress up in costumes in today's world. I guess Watchmen's prediction that guys becoming real-life superheroes because of comic books changing the entire social climate of the U.S. was a bit of a stretch. They just look a bit silly, and they call the cops on, I guess, kids in hoodies? Finally, we come back to that epigraph from the book. Who watches the Watchmen? This is quoted from the Tower Commission Report in 1987, which was released before the series' conclusion, but not before it began. A case of life imitating art, I suppose. Watchmen is not the name of the group of superheroes. Despite what Snyder's film retconned, it, it's not. They're called the Crime Busters, which is a purposely stupid name to make it clear how bizarre and campy the very idea of superheroes is when juxtaposed with modern, real issues. The term originates from a Latin phrase and relates to the book's critique of not only the superhero genre, but of the powers that be in general. And this is a recurring theme in Moore's work, such as V for Vendetta, another acclaimed entry in comics history. And so, we find ourselves at the next part of Watchmen that is also fascinating. It's satire. Moore and Gibbon's brutal skewering of the genre is evident in pretty much all of its characters, and since I've already talked about Dr. Manhattan, I want to narrow my focus to three of the central figures, Rorschach, Night Owl, and Ozymandias. Despite all being doppelgangers of Charlton Comics characters, there are a number of influences on each. Rorschach is a clear indictment of the personal philosophy of Stevie Ditko, who I mentioned earlier co-created Spider-Man, but who also created characters like Mr. A that were essentially right-wing extremists who saw the world in black and white terms. Ditko was a big fan of Ayn Rand, by the way. Somebody had been interviewing Ditko and had said, uh, have you ever heard of this book, Watchmen? And he said, uh, what's that? And I said, well, it's got this character in called Rorschach. And he said, oh, yes, Rorschach. He's like Mr. A, except he's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Most of Ditko's fans found the character of Mr. A a tad extreme. And I suspect that many were shocked to realize that Ditko's politics were somewhat different to their own. Rorschach is a direct response to this sort of figure and ideology. But all three characters reflect, in my eyes, different aspects of the character Batman. And this is something that is my original take that no one else has done. If you at me on this, I will fight you. Batman seems an appropriate target for critique by Moore and Gibbons, considering he is arguably the most popular comic book hero ever created. Batman embodies a number of tropes, but the most obvious appear to be the dark loner detective, the gadgeteer genius, and the empathetic billionaire who hopes to inspire humanity, and Watchmen skewers all of these. Rorschach, the most popular character in Watchmen, much to his creator's dismay, is a demented right-wing conspiracy theorist, probable psychopath, misogynist, homophobe, extremist, he kills quite a few people in his quest for justice, and he's vicious, ugly, and is just generally a creepy hobo who also smells and eats cold beans. He's a massive hypocrite having to do mental gymnastics to justify his black and white worldview when faced with ambiguity, and seems compulsively driven to fight crime. 
as he's also a misanthrope and a nihilist, and appears to have no true purpose to protect his fellow man except, quote, Because there is good and there is evil, and evil must be punished. Rorschach is stubbornly committed to this cause and ideology, even saying that he will never compromise, even in the face of Armageddon by nuclear war. He seems to react to Batman's brutality and insane willpower to fight crime. Moore felt that a character like Batman, if he were a real person, would not be this embodiment of human perfection and moral good. The type of person who would become the type of vigilante Batman is would be a violent psychopath with some serious sexual hang-ups and a general distaste for everything. And unlike Bruce Wayne, Rorschach is not from a good family, he's not avenging anyone. His misogyny is mostly informed by his mother, who raised him in poverty, abusing him and exposing him to her occupation as a prostitute. Moore's point is not to justify Rorschach's behavior, but rather to explain the type of extreme life experiences that would inspire such a self-destructive and painful lifestyle and outlook. Rorschach seems to have more in common with Travis Bickle than a comic book hero. He's compulsively driven to commit self-destructive acts to push other people away. He wants to die but won't admit it to himself, and he exposes himself to the scum of humanity to justify his own actions. And yet, he's still a human being. There are hints to an empathy and humanity behind Rorschach, and that's what makes him such a fascinating character. He's not just a grim parody of Batman or The Question, he's a developed and complicated man with depth and you wind up even pitying him by the book's conclusion. Night Owl 2, real name Daniel Dryberg, is one of the retired heroes we meet at the book's beginning who used to be Rorschach's partner. It's a maintenance hatch that'll let you out two blocks north. Yeah, I remember. Came here often when we were partners. Yeah, those are great times, huh, Rorschach? What happened? You quit. Not only is his costume reminiscent of Batman, but he too has a futuristic aircraft which looks like the animal he takes his name from. He has a basement with intersecting escape tunnels and a big-ass computer where he works on his gear and missions. And it's implied he even had a fling with a Catwoman-like villainess back in the 70s. He also appears to have some form of wealth considering he has an entire apartment building to himself and presumably created and maintains all of his cool gadgets. However, unlike Batman, who in addition to his utility belt and Batcave is a perfect specimen of physical and mental health and whose sexual chemistry with female villains and allies alike never interferes with his journey, Night Owl is kind of pathetic and limp-dicked. Literally. The man is impotent. After retiring, Dan has become a pudgy, lonely spinster who lives alone, doesn't appear to have a real job, hangs out with Hollis Mason, his mentor, reminiscing about the good old days, and has an unrequited sexual interest in Silk Spectre, which comes off more like a schoolboy crush, showing how underdeveloped Dan is an adult. Nowhere is he smooth, collected, and slick like Bruce Wayne, nor is he really cool and tough like Batman. He's just kind of a guy. When Silk Spectre, aka Lori, attempts to get it on with Dan while staying with him after her boyfriend Dr. Manhattan fucks off to Mars, just read the book, it's a long story, he can't get it up. Until Lori and he go save some folks from a tenement fire dressed in their old costumes, and he's finally able to seal the deal. Dan is revealed to be sexually frustrated and impotent as a result of his retirement from superheroics and because of the threat of nuclear war, which he's powerless to stop. And his pronounced chub that is clearly visible under his outfit makes his getup look more comical and dorky than cool. Flashbacks reveal he was a lot more fit when he was a superhero, but the costume only looks slightly less dorky. He has something of a sexual psychosis related to this outfit, revealing perhaps Dan, who up until this point was easily the most normal and well-adjusted of DX superheroes, is a bit crazy too. His superhero persona allows him to disappear from himself into another person and gives him feelings of power he needs to feel sexually invigorated. 
His fear at his powerlessness to stop the nukes from flying may also relate to his sexual frustration regarding Dr. Manhattan, an all-powerful god with a chiseled physique who definitely could stop the nuclear holocaust, and how Laurie may not fully be over him. It's clear that Dan is meant to explore the more pathetic, dorky, and ridiculous side of superheroes, and deconstruct the Batman-type badass, taking him from a Casanova and a cow to a semi-normal guy going through a midlife crisis. Fight. Bastard! If you've hurt her, I'll... Dan. <coughs> Grow up. My new world demands less obvious heroism. Your... schoolboy heroics are redundant. What have they achieved? Finally, Adrian Veidt, also known as Ozymandias, reflects the public-facing side of the Bruce Wayne archetype, the friendly billionaire philanthropist who uses his wealth and resources for humanitarian efforts, who also just happens to be at the peak of human physical and mental conditioning. Strikingly handsome, with Olympic-level athletic ability and a 200-plus IQ, Veidt is known as the world's smartest man, and is rumored to be so fast he can catch a bullet in midair. Likely a reference to The Flash's first appearance, another history nod. Okay, so right about now, I'm going to seriously spoil the whole ending of the book for everyone, so please skip ahead to the timestamp I'm going to list below, because... I don't want to spoil it that much for you, but Ozymandias is a character who is practically impossible to understand without spoiling a good deal of the ending. Towards the end of the novel, all the heroes come to discover in their own time that Ozymandias, who has been this point the most mysterious and inactive of them all, has been plotting for years to create a massive catastrophe, which is just too good and honestly too complicated to give away here. Disguised as an attack from a supernatural force, which will prove so great that the USSR and the US will unite to face this new threat together, thus nixing the threat of nuclear war. And in a true subversive fashion, he has already succeeded by the time the heroes confront him. Of course, this plan doesn't account for how tenuous a balance of peace this creates, and so Ozymandias can be seen as the true embodiment of his namesake, the Percy Shelley poem. A man who has spent his whole life building towards greatness, only to find that forces beyond his control may tear him down one day. Ozymandias' character is a brilliant deconstruction of the Bruce Wayne trope, a man so full of conviction and absolute empathy for his fellow man that he, in turn, must perform a feat of truly unparalleled psychopathic violence in order to achieve world peace. We can see this as a sort of parody of Bruce Wayne's attempt to reduce crime in his city by committing brutal violence against criminals and the criminally insane. And just as Batman's quest never truly solved the world's problems, Ozymandias is left to ponder if his plan will have the effects he hopes for. He utilizes his vast wealth and resources, as well as his superior intellect and calculating nature, to enact his extremist plan for world peace, just as Bruce Wayne funnels his own wealth and resources and channels his genius IQ into his unending quest to hospitalize every baddie in Gotham City. Superheroes in this story also function more as PR machines and controversial celebrities than actual heroes. The comedian, also known as Edward Blake, is a terrific example. An attempted rapist, misogynist, extreme nihilist, and vicious psychopath, the comedian is the antithesis of everything we hope to see in a superhero. The fact that he's also an extremely effective soldier and murderer to boot makes him all the more terrifying. And yet, in the story, because he is a World War II hero and government agent, he has good press. The public seems to kinda like him from what we see in the mainstream press, at least prior to the publishing of the tell-all that talks about his mean streak. You know, the book I mentioned earlier. You gotta keep up, folks. It serves to satirize the public valoration of superheroes both in and out of the comics medium, causing us to question ourselves and remind one of the expression, never meet your heroes. 
The heroes and Watchmen function as dark mirrors of the characters and tropes they're based upon, and their intensely and deeply complex psychological profiles and moral compasses make them feel perhaps more relatable and, in a strange way, likable than the typical hyper-idealized superheroes that populate comics. Part of the brilliance in Watchmen, and the final piece to this puzzle, is its social critique of the U.S. in the 1980s. Because of its alternative timeline, Watchmen is able to play around with U.S. culture and history while still maintaining a grounded realism that acknowledges the social ills and worldwide anxieties that plagued the turbulent decade. Throughout the book, a punk subculture called the Not-Tops get a lot of attention, whether they be in the background of a panel or on the news, with members usually being portrayed as hyper-violent, drug-addled, and homophobic, as well as anti-superhero, though this is due to the public perception of superheroes as perverted deviants within the story's world, so it still kind of plays into the homophobia thing. One of the not-top bands seen promoted throughout the book on posters is called Crystal Knocked. Anyone who knows their World War II history, which you really should if you're going to read a book that's basically about living in a post-nuclear world, aka a post-World War II world, will recognize this as the German expression for Night of Broken Glass, an event where supporters and members of the rising Nazi party vandalized and attacked various Jewish-owned businesses. This band's name is perhaps merely a general reference to Holocaust and or war, which is a motif common throughout Watchmen. Or perhaps it is an acknowledgement of the plague of neo-Nazis in the punk rock movement during the 70s and 80s, which got so severe that Dead Kennedys recorded a song about it, Nazi Punks Fuck Off. Another aspect of 80s culture that the book appears to acknowledge is both the rise of the LGBT movement, but also the rampant homophobia during the time. Several supporting characters are identified as gay or lesbian, and some are a bit tropified, like Joey, a female cab driver who frequents the local newsstand where the kid is reading the Black Freighter. The comic comes back here frequently, but I didn't want to delve into it too much right now. Joey is portrayed as a lesbian, but also is kind of a butch stereotype. However, despite this, practically all of them are given a level of depth and complexity completely uncommon in media of this period, let alone comic books, mainstream comic books. Joey even advertises a gay-positive movement she's a member of, which protests sexual violence, at the newsstand. However, Watchmen also takes the time to acknowledge the flip side of this, which is the rampant homophobia of the 1980s, with several not-tops dropping homophobic slurs and remarks regarding superheroes. The public opinion regarding superheroes in this book is also laced with an undercurrent of homophobia and a general revulsion towards non-conformative sexualities. It's clear Watchmen was paying mind when it was written to the social battles that were being fought around it, whether within the subculture of the punk community or the rise of gay and lesbian activism. Ironically, the one media outlet portrayed in the book which doesn't shit on superheroes is the one readers are probably not intended to sympathize with or take very seriously, The New Frontiersman. The Frontiersman is a far-right local paper which Rorschach regularly reads, and which plays the Alex Jones card of being underground and anti-establishment. The paper's political cartoons are shown to be incredibly racist and xenophobic, and its editor is portrayed as a miserable, curmudgeonly piece of shit who berates his employee Seymour, who might be his only employee for all we know, constantly for literally no reason. The Frontiersman is clearly a parody of right-wing media in general, but in particular the type of media during the 80s, when it was on the rise. It flip-flops on politics, it seems to hate big government, but loves the idea of costume vigilantes who exercise their own brand of justice on civilians whenever they discern. It also plays into the senseless paranoia of the times. One issue that's included as a kind of supplemental reading features a story which the reporter immediately ties into a conspiracy involving a black magic cult, which undoubtedly was Moore's way of making fun of the satanic cult paranoia that was going on in the 80s. And finally, the big boy. 
the nuclear paranoia which hangs like a terrifying shadow of everyday life in this book, which folks often forget was a very real fear during the 80s. Up to five minutes until midnight. Destruction by nuclear war. Question. On a scale of zero to ten, zero meaning impossibility, ten meaning complete metaphysical certitude, what are the chances the Russians will actually attack the United States? Pat Buchanan. Zero. The Soviets would never risk going to war when we have a walking nuclear deterrent on our side. Well, you're referring, of course, to Dr. Manhattan. But does Dr. Manhattan's existence guarantee world peace? Eleanor it offers an unflinching window into life during the Cold War, offering a social critique of why we desire protector figures at all, whether they be the government or superheroes when they rarely have our best interests at heart and even exacerbate the dangers we are in to feed their own interests or egos, or in the case of superheroes in this book, exacerbate tensions even further by their very existence. The book is even more eerily prophetic today with its depictions of the perversions of the justice system and politics for personal gains, the shady competing interests in Washington, and for the simple fact that the nukes never went anywhere. We've just decided to forget about them since the Berlin Wall fell. We're not all that much further away from nuclear war than we were in 1985, and Watchmen gives us a glimpse of a society on the absolute brink of devastation, which we can still hypothetically become because the nukes are still there. Or maybe we've become Dr. Manhattan, so isolated and detached from each other that we don't even see a reason to care. And now, if you'll join me for a discussion, a little less serious discussion, with Cameron Hawkins of Dual Shockers on Zack Snyder's film adaptation and just generally what he thinks of the book. Uh, my name is Cameron Hawkins. Uh, I am a film enthusiast uh, as well as a gaming enthusiast and uh, video game journalist. I, um, you can follow me on social media basically anywhere um, at the cinephile guy. And uh, yeah. So kind of popping this off, we were going to talk a little bit about the movie Watchmen. Yep. But um, before we get into that, did you, you've read the book, right? A long time ago. I don't Do remember. You... I don't remember a whole lot. But I know like the significant differences that are sure. between the. Do you do you remember like did you remember having like a good impression of the book and stuff like? Oh that? yeah, I think like, it's, oh yeah, I thought it was phenomenal at the time. Great, cool. We agree. So um, so as far as the movie goes, like, did you have an experience first watching it, or did you did you? Because for me, I discovered the movie first. That's how uh, I got into it. Me me as well. Because when I went to go see The Dark Knight, a trailer played for it, mm -hmm. and I had no idea what it was. But it said Com DC Comics. Yeah. And I was like, what hero is this? And then it, like, showed Watchmen. I'm like, I've never heard of this before in my life. Yeah. So um, I was – like, my dad doesn't know shit about movies. I mean, he does, but he doesn't know, like, that much about, like, superheroes or comic books. Yeah. So, like, I just told him I wanted to go see it. And then my mom was like, oh, it's rated R. But, like, she was, like, not sure. And she's like, yeah, it's a super – I'm sure it'll be fine. And then he took me to see it, and it was like this horrifically gory graphic movie with sex it's and really like explicit. rape. And like, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. We stayed till the end, though, because he just kept thinking it was going to eventually wrap around into something good. And then it just ends on this complete, like, bittersweet downer. And yeah. you're like, oh, okay. Um, oh, yeah. Spoiler alert, everybody. I mean, I kind of spoiled the movie. I did a first half narration, but um, so there's people know. Um, but yeah, um, so what was it you're like, did, when you saw it first, what was your like, what did you get out of it? Did you feel like, like, oh my God, what is this? Is, this is so new. 
uh i thought it was yeah i thought it was fascinating just like how different it was for like a quote-unquote like superhero movie um because not like your traditional comic books which after watching it and like from that time since now and reading more alan moore material he's very well known for like being very different and very compelling in that sense so it's um when I first saw it, I, I, like I, I loved it when I saw it, and I still love it to, to this day equally as much. Um, I understand that people uh, don't like the changes that were made into the movie, but I don't think, for the most part, it hinders the quality of what the original source material was. Um, there's some things that could have been fleshed out more, but I don't think that, like, basically, like the ending bit, how. Um, in the graphic novels, there's basically like the squid, the squid attack, and in the movie, it's uh, Osmond Deus basically just creates um, tachyon nuclear bombs of sorts to uh, wipe out um, po- like you know populations in uh, major cities to stop the Soviets in the U.S. from um, you know potentially starting a third world war. Uh, so. I don't think again. Like I don't think that it really hinders the movie in any way with this like, with the difference, uh, the substitute that they made. Um, I think it also is like it's more like I guess it's just taken more seriously from a general audience than like than the squid because than, the whole the point of the squid was like, the the giant squid monster attack was like, oh, isn't this like it's an inherently ridiculous plan to kind of like because it's a satire almost mm-hmm. the book. Um, but one thing a lot of people pointed out that I didn't even notice, which is like the the movie is so completely like faithful to the graphic novel in so many ways I agree. that the changes they do make, it's like why? Because somebody pointed out they're like, okay, the squid monster not being in there, sure. But then they also have Ozymandias' pet like genetically modified cat show up mm-hmm. without explanation. But in the book, it's explained there's genetic experiments, which kind of sets up the whole squid thing in the beginning, at the end. So it's like, why include the cat if you're not going to, like, delve into that? It's like... For sure. It's like, I guess people have pointed out that it's like, the universe building is almost like... It's almost a film made for people that are already kind of familiar with the source material, because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in there that goes kind of underexplained that I feel like a general audience member would be like, I don't understand. What what is this? Yeah, and I, um, with the, you know, his pet, I think that while there's total validity to what you're saying, it still is just just a nice nod to the graphic sure. novel. I mean, it didn't really like um, when I first saw the movie, I didn't even like, I just was like, okay, I guess he has like a weird exotic cat. I didn't mm-hmm. even think of it being like a genetically modified. Thing. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree completely. Um, cause Watchmen, like while it's one of my favorite superhero films, um, it's there, it's not, you know, it's not a perfect film, but I think that, um, I'll, I think the vast majority of what it brings is like really nice. And I like how, just how campy it can be just like, over the top over exaggerated yeah um and when it comes to uh what was the other thing you're saying uh what was the last thing you mentioned i just mentioned the uh the genetically modified thing Mm -hmm. i mentioned uh i don't know like the uh, the the, the... oh the uh how some things weren't fleshed out yeah so like i think the main bit that like i think that most people including myself wish that they added more of was like 
Rorschach in the sense of like where he got his mask and where he got his face. Yeah, like, because they mentioned the prostitute mom thing. Yeah. But it's like, why does he have this otherworldly mask? And in the mm-hmm. book's just like this throwaway line that's like a simple explanation. Like, oh, it's like uh, it's like some knockoff fabric based on something Dr. Manhattan came up with. And that's how it can move like that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes sense. But yeah, I just, I just, I just wish they kind of dove into that a little bit more. But I like the, the you know, the story that um, he tells about when you know how he uh, was looking for that uh, girl that was kidnapped, that little mm-hmm. girl, and how he said that like he was, um, he was soft because he didn't, he didn't kill, you know, everyone that like deserved it at the time and stuff like that. He get, like he was more merciful. Yeah, like that whole bit, I think, was probably when I, I saw this movie when I was like in fifth grade with mm-hmm. my dad. I think that was the point in the movie where my dad probably flipped on it a little bit and was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, yeah. like, if uh, just those light spoiler, if you don't know, they give a little bit of Rorschach's origin. And like, he finds out this kid was like butchered and fed to this guy's dogs. So he like splits his head open with a cleaver. It's awful. It's like so gruesome. What? Arrest me! I did it! I said I did it! Christ! Look, I've got a problem, man. Fucking take me in. I need help. No, don't! Don't do that! Take me in! No! No! Men get arrested. Dogs get put down. Um, but it's, uh, but uh, something kind of bringing up the Rorschach thing that I thought was actually that aged like unbelievably well, because so many effects I've noticed from the 2007 to 2011 period just have not aged gracefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Watchmen's effects look great. Like yeah. I can't believe it. Like, and it's like not, it, it wasn't like a major budgeted movie i don't even think like it was big budget but it wasn't like ever designed to be like a summer blockbuster or anything no definitely not but i think uh yeah i don't know what the uh, budget was for Watchmen. uh let me look this up really quick but yeah because for a long time part of the part part of the problem with a lot of people who tried to adapt Watchmen was the the, the three things were the owl ship, dr manhattan and rorschach's mask because you're like how do we get this guy to have this mask that looks like it has no eye holes and it moves constantly with mm-hmm. him. Uh, how do we get this guy to have this luminescent blue glow that doesn't look like cheap and stupid or just like painting a guy blue? Yeah. And how do we get that ship to move like sleek and look cool? Like, um, cause it's just, it's so like, these things are so iconic and they're like all throughout the book. Like you can't not do them. Um, so I think those effects have aged absolutely gracefully, and I, I like that aspect of the movie a lot. And a lot of people shit on uh, Billy Crudup as Dr. Manhattan, but I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I thought he did a good job, too. I can't really read him without picturing like that voice, like mm-hmm. the kind of soft voice. Reassembling myself was the first trick I learned. It didn't kill Osterman. Did you really think it would kill yeah, I don't think, uh, I really don't think anyone in their role was, like, bad in any, like, I never was like, oh, this could have been better, like, I thought everything was, was fine, yeah. um, so, you know, but being two people that watched 
the movie before reading the graphic novel, that might be that might be a reason. It's a little bit it. of nostalgia going on for this movie. I feel like maybe if I was a jaded twenty five year old when I saw it, I might not like it as much. Or if we read the books first and we kind of had a a voice pictured in our minds oh, and it course. was something different. Mm. Uh, but I think yeah, I think all the performances were uh, really well done. Um, I think the top two were definitely um, uh, Rorschach. Um, I forgot the actor who plays him. Oh, Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie, yeah, Jackie Earl Haley, and then um, Jeffrey Dean uh, Morgan for the comedian. Yeah. Now, did you know Jackie Earl Haley? Like literally, like three years before Watchmen, hadn't been in acting for like twenty five years. Oh, really? He had. He was a child actor. He was the tough kid in Bad News Bears, the original. Okay. And then he was in a couple other movies. And then he kind of fell off, and he just became like a normal everyday guy. Mm-hmm. And his old agent called him up completely randomly one day for this movie, Little Children, which also has Patrick Wilson, who played Night Owl in this mm-hmm. movie. And they're like, hey, we read this part for you, and we just think you might be good at it. And he turned to his wife. He's like, should I do it? And she's like, yeah, go for it. And then he did it, and he got, like, an Oscar nomination, and then he was, like, in movies again. And now he's, like, in a ton of movies. Yeah. Usually typecast as, like, a weirdo bad guy because he's kind of goofy, strange-looking. Yeah. Uh, and he has, like, a gruff voice but like for for rorschach he was like he was like perfect i like literally like one of my favorite movie performances in general like just Uh, every time i'm just like man this guy just fucking nailed it rorschach's journal october 12th 1985 dog carcass in alley this morning tire tread on burst stomach this city's afraid of me I've seen its true face. The streets are extended gutters, and the gutters are full of blood. And when the drains finally scab over, all the vermin will drown. And you know what's so funny about that, too, is like that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people actually do point to. Like, there's certain moments that are improved upon via the movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is when Dr. Manhattan like flips out and leaves the TV yeah. station. That was really well done. And the other thing is um, when he kills uh, – spoiler alert – when he kills Rorschach at the end, Yeah, that was handled much more emotionally gratifying and like felt more cathartic in the movie. Mm-hmm. But I do respect the way the novel did it too in the sense that in the movie everything is a little more grandiose than it is in the novel – a little more over the top. Yeah. The novel is a lot more subdued and has this kind of cold, cerebral vibe to it. So having Rorschach's death be really sudden and like understated and kind of like pathetically quick in the book makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it also, whenever I read it, I'm like, it's just so like whatever. Like it's like it's just uneventful. It just makes you feel nothing, which is the point mm-hmm. of the book. But the movie just has that, like, amazing, like, like, he's so good in it. And it's so, like, it's such a good, they reworded the exchange, too, in a way that I think it sounds better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they added that Night Owl actually sees Rorschach die, which makes their relationship feel like it came more full circle. Yeah. Um, actually makes it seem like he kind of gave a shit about him. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm scared from the start. None of this would have happened. I can change almost anything. But I can't change human nature. Of course, you must protect rights in the utopia. What's one more body amongst foundations? 
show yet i haven't i want to like i actually like kind of wanted to plan on watching that tonight because i I rewatched watchmen last night oh nice um and from what i've heard it sounds super fascinating it does but okay so so i had this like bit in my head where i was like okay you know how a big theme of watchmen is like how superheroes have totally shifted like cultural norms and like society and pop culture and everything Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, like, you know that porn site, blacked.com? Yeah. It would be blued.com. Okay. It would just be painted like Dr. Manhattan. So, like, it's a very, like, the, is it, is the filter for the show, like, very blue or, like? No, no, it would just be, like, guys painted blue. Oh, okay. Like, so, oh, so, so like, there's. Because like... he's a sex symbol in Watchmen. Okay. Oh, really? So, yeah, okay. yeah. in the book, they mention a couple times that he's, like, this like, newspaper guy's, like, I can't believe my wife fantasized about this guy. Because mm-hmm. he's, like, jacked. <laughs> like... Yeah. Another thing that, like, uh, again, like, when not fleshing out um, characters, like, you know, they he talks about how he, he like, when he put the, the symbol on his head, on his forehead. Yeah. He said, like, one that he respects. He, like, what 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 is that? Like, they, he, he never, it's never explained what that symbol is or what it means. He said it's a hot, yeah, because in the book he mentions it's like a hydrogen atom, mm-hmm. and he doesn't want the random like silly sci-fi atom symbol because it just looks corny, mm-hmm. and also the helmet just looks dumb. It's like a bike helmet they're putting on him. Yeah. Um. Uh, and that's something I talk about too. Like even at the beginning of introducing his costume in the book, which is so interesting, is the slow, gradual removing of clothing as he becomes less and less like. He becomes less connected to his former identity and more and more just, like, this other being. Yeah. It's almost like the more clothes he sheds, he's like, those are, like, human customs. I don't really need to follow that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just, like, this other thing. Uh, But my my point of bringing up the bit of, like, having blued.com, where it's just guys who are jacked that are painted blue like Dr. Manhattan, uh, HBO beat me to it. Because without giving too much away... Uh, apparently at the end of the third episode, there's a scene with old Lori. She okay. pulls out a giant dildo that's literally blue. Okay. Like they have like Dr. Manhattan sex toys in the world of Watchmen now. Okay. That's weird. Cause one, this takes place in current, like 2019, right? Yeah. So he's so like, like, he's like 80 so this years is, old. So this is like 30 years later. Yeah. And they're still, okay. They're still going on on about it like because i guess like because the point obviously is like the reason i brought up the bit too is because like in the 80s that type of like porn and like sex toy industry didn't really exist in the way it does now where it's super mainstream and like it's all over the place it's, yeah like, it was like something you'd only get in like shitty parts of town um but like i guess like that's what my whole joke was about is like well watchmen like when they invent the internet and they invent like porn and the whole like adult industry now mm-hmm. would the superheroes affect that and apparently according to watchmen 2019 yes they do yeah okay <laughs> i was like it's just so odd <laughs> like, yeah that, that is really weird I'm like how do i take that seriously but maybe in the context it makes more sense i have not seen the show i have heard the age old battles of like journalist op-eds versus like disgruntled fanboys that happens every time one of these things comes out where it's like i've i've honestly heard nothing but good things about the show uh it's like it's like one of those situations it seems like where there's a certain segment of the online fandom that really hates a certain decision i mean that's always gonna happen like so i guess the big controversy about this new one is that um so rorschach's journal gets published Mm -hmm. which already is kind of like I don't know how to feel about it because, like, the whole point of the original book is that you kind of 
it's left in your hands like to like open it and be like well what happened like who knows well no because in the because in the journal he does say that adrian was behind everything no yeah but like we don't even know if the kid reads the he's like looking at it and it's like in it the journal i in think a stack. i think as someone who just watched the movie last night and like you know is a fan like a real fan of that movie i think it was pretty heavily implied that like even though you know, it was supposed to be a secret between Silk Spectre and Night Owl and Osmondeus for the, you know, for basically for the rest of ever. Mm. Um, that, you know, the, the journal still ended up somewhere where, you know, the secrets can be revealed because that's what, you know, Rorschach was just like, I'm not, I'm not for the secrets or anything like that. And who knows, like that, that journal could have been dropped off by Night Owl. That could have been dropped off by... Silk Spectre, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, because so, so, we don't really know who had, like, who had his journal. It just kind of yeah. showed up. Oh no, yeah. In the in the book, they make it explicit that he like he drops it in a mailbox before they go off to Antarctica. Oh, before they go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause, so he cause, so he kind of like predicted that he was yeah. going to die. Yeah. Like, okay. And that he, makes it. Any any that makes it even cooler. And he sent opinion. it to his favorite newspaper, which is like this schizophrenic right wing underground newspaper that he reads that like no one else reads apparently. Wow. So like in the because the the new show is not a sequel to the movie. It's like it's a, a sequel, sequel to the, to the graphic novel. Book. Yeah. So um. Which is another case similar to the Zack Snyder movie where it's like if you haven't already read the book, you're going to be completely out of the loop on all of this shit. Like, yeah. Um, but so one of the things is that because it was published in this like far right newspaper, people have taken Rorschach's words and like now there's this whole like KKK. White yeah, there's like a t- there's a terrorist organization, right? That, like where is his face? Yeah, that's and, wild. Um, so I guess a lot of fans were pissed off because they're like, well, Rorschach was never like racist. He was just like a right wing nut job. And I'm like, there's two sides of it I agree with in the sense that, like, the way that they portrayed that the Rorschach influence in this story seems more of a reaction to the fact that Rorschach has become this, like, beloved character, even mm-hmm. though he's not really supposed to be. Yeah. Than to the book itself, which portrays him as, like, a very multi-layered, interesting character. And I feel like that's kind of the point. Right. And, like, but then I see the other way, too. I see it like, oh, but, like, he did leave his journal behind. Nobody really knows who this guy really is. So they have no context as we do to see like his inner workings of his mind and they can just take his like, and his, his journal is pretty extreme. It espouses mm-hmm. a lot of like insane viewpoints on things. Yeah. So it's understandable that equally crazy people would adopt his words and like take it in their own direction. Yeah. So I can appreciate that too. But the, I think a lot of that backlash has come because the producers themselves don't seem to like the Rorschach character. They like, they're like, Oh, he's just a creepy weirdo, which he, is but like yeah I think, he's literally a schizophrenic well, like, yeah, like he's like he's like a like a, a sociopath like, yeah. like and like that was alan moore's whole point too is like he really didn't like the rorschach character and he was really disturbed that people would come up to him and like tell him they loved him and like how great they thought rorschach was yeah because um, he was super compelling like yeah he, he was he was crazy but like he was right like but i think moore is also smart enough to where he's not going in the direction that maybe, like, Damon Lindelof would just say, like, oh, he's a fucking crazy person. Like, because V from V from Vendetta is also a crazy person. And mm-hmm. he's more to Alan Moore's own politics than Rorschach is. Yeah. But Alan Moore would agree with both interpretations that, like, hey, these guys do have humanity. Like, they have a part of them that I'm showing that they're not just evil. And they're not, like, truly, like, bad, bad people at their core. But they're just, like so damaged like you can't do anything yeah to help them. It's, it, they're damaged goods so i think that's like 
like it's down like a lot of people i guess felt like it was disrespectful to downplay the more like heroic things that rorschach does do however i also am like but i also feel that does valorize him a little too much because the book and the and the movie the movie less so it does kind of glorify rorschach a little bit but the book definitely goes out of its way to show like hey this dude's like a complete hypocrite and he's like just very disturbed and like you should not he's unreliable narrator like unpleasant right wing character is rorschach he almost ends up as the hero of the book he's certainly the character who seems to have the most ferocious integrity even if his politics are completely mad he has this ferocious moral integrity so i I, i'm interested as well i think i think they do kind of I think I don't think that's a hundred percent true with the movie because because okay. you know uh, I forgot specifically what Night Owl says to him but he basically goes goes off on him yeah and Rorschach's like no you're right like I yeah. sometimes I don't know how to you know I don't know how to express what I'm truly feeling and I'm sorry about yeah. that but you're a good friend like yeah. for dealing with me like I think he, he yeah, he's no, aware of his issues no that's definitely like that's like straight pulled from the book too and like that's one of those moments I think that was like oh like see he does have a like a little bit of a human side to him yeah um, he just thinks that everyone who does something bad deserves yeah. to die. One part of the book that I find, like, that they really... I, I wish they'd included it in the film version because it tells you so much about the kind of person he is and, like, kind of part of his hypocrisy of, like, not choosing to follow his code sometimes but also, like, showing the humanity is uh, they establish in the book, obviously, that he has, like, this gross landlady that has all these kids by mm-hmm. different fathers and how he... She, it's assumed she's, like, a prostitute and, like, he despises her and thinks she's, like... Rorschach is a heavy misogynist, so he basically thinks women are just, like, whores. Uh, Like, no condoning of this opinion. But later in the book, when he breaks out of prison with Night Owl, he goes to, like, collect his clothes from the apartment. Mm -hmm. And he runs into her because she on the news was bad-mouthing him and saying he came on to her, which is not true because Rorschach is, like, repulsed by sex. He would never come on to anyone. Yeah, he's, like, asexual. He's, like, very—he has a very warped psychology surrounding sex and women. Yeah, but so because of his past and everything. So he shows up to the place and she's freaked out because he's like an insane person. And he's kind of implying he's going to like do something to her. Like, hey, you lied about me. And Daniel's like, oh, come on, man, let it go. He's like, can't. Reputation online, very bad. And he's like approaching her with like this Terminator gaze. And then he calls her like a whore. And she like cries and says not to say it in front of her kids because they don't know. And then Rorschach looks at one of the kids' eyes. And then it cuts to this expression that you never see him make in the rest of the book where he just looks like really sad. And then he just goes, okay, I guess we're done here. We're leaving. And he leaves and doesn't do anything to her. Because, and, yeah, because it yeah. reminded him of himself. But also the fact that, like, she's like, they don't know. And it reminds him, like, his mother never protected him from that side of from mm-hmm. her life and those and that violence and that, that, that criminal element. But this woman is taking the steps to, like, provide for her kids but also, pr- she, like, maintain their innocence a little mm-hmm. bit. And then he sees it in him. And it just, like, is, like, this really small but very powerful moment that, like – shows that Alan Moore also is, like, including these elements to be, like, yeah, but, like, you can pity him a little bit. Like, he's, he's it's a sad, he has, like, a sad story. Yeah, he's like, just not a maniacal maniac just to be a, like, you know, he's not a maniac just to be a maniac. Like, he has, like, again, he's damaged goods. Like, he he experienced some rough shit, and, you know, he never really had anyone to speak to yeah. about it. So, like, he basically just grew up alone. 
Yeah, totally. And then the other thing too is that uh, I, I shouldn't have said it glorifies Rorschach specifically, but one of the critiques that I've seen brought up about the Snyder film that is an interesting one is because of Snyder's inability to not make shit look really cool mm-hmm. it like makes the effect of actually making the watchman look really badass and cool when like the whole book is like trying to make these people as uncool as possible like even like patrick wilson like he put on some pudge for night owl mm-hmm. but he's still in pretty good shape like night owl in the book is straight up he's got like a beer gut he's like mm-hmm. just completely like just pathetic looking and then like Night on the movie, his costume's actually kind of sick. Like, yeah, I'm, I mean, I don't think they, like, I guess sure that they that they look cooler than they actually are, but they don't like act. They don't have no, like, no. They still include a lot of the the like philosophizing. Yeah, shit. which I think is what really matters. Yeah. Um. So, like, I get it, but I think that's just like splitting hairs at that point. Sure. And um, only the one the one change that I did feel was like such a. Not a bad change because it just it looks better on film, I'm sure. But just a bizarre change was like Silk Spectre having like a latex outfit. So it's like, well, she's not really not really Silk Spectre anymore, is she? Yeah. Like, but I I understand because I'm like I don't know how they were gonna make the like silk costume work on mm-hmm. film, so I see why they had to like change it. Yeah. Um. I, yeah. I I I mean I I dug all the outfits. I thought they were all pretty cool. Um, yeah. But. That, that 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 is a valid criticism um so you know uh but uh so if you don't know when it comes to watchmen there's like three different versions of this film oh yeah there's like the normal version there's the director's cut which i would recommend as the definitive version and then yeah. the ultimate cut which is what i watched last night yeah um and that one's like three and a half hours it's three and a half right? hours long which the vast majority of it is 100% like worth it. Like, you know, um, but cause I think this was the first time I watched the ultimate cut was last night. And what the only differences that they make is they add these un really unnecessary scenes with this news stand guy and, uh, this, uh, teenager, and he gave him this comic to read called Black Freighter. Yeah, because that's all over the book. But is it's, it in, it's, it's oh yeah. yeah, it's all over. But it's way more. I talked about this in the narration portion too. But it's way more like streamlined in the book. It makes a lot more sense. It's mm. built into the narrative more smoothly. Yeah, it's in in this point like, it's like thirty extra minutes of scene like like you know legit animated scenes that don't really add to the story at all. Um, it's more of a, a like a long-term nod to that portion of the graphic yeah. novel. And that portion in the graphic novel does tie in with like Ozymandias' journey and being like marooned as a man yeah. from humanity. But uh, Zack Snyder, and I talked about this too, Zack Snyder himself admitted that he didn't cut, cut it in even to the director's cut at first because they had created it and then he just wound up going on the DVD extras because they're like, we just couldn't find a way to make it work. It just fucked up the pacing of the movie because yeah, it just it cuts does. in. It really does. Yeah, and it's because, like, and I talked about this, because in a comic book, because it's a serialized format, you can have a little more uneven pacing where you stop and to look at other things. But in a movie, it's just a little more streamlined pacing. So when something really halts it, you notice it. You're like, oh, it's not like a slow episode of a TV show. It's like in the middle of the movie, it just stops. Yeah, and... Yeah, because really, like, it doesn't do anything to move the plot forward. All it is is to, like, build this, like, really unnecessary relationship between the, these two characters. 
and then they end up dying from one of the tachyon bombs because yeah, they're in New York City. Which in the comic is way more tragic because you get to see this de- relationship develop over time. And yeah. like I said, it's way more integral. But it's like it's just like these awkwardly added in scenes in the in the film, which are like on the surface, like yeah, they're adapting part of the book, but they're not really integrating it as effectively as Alan Moore did. Yeah. So it just becomes like it feels less tragic, like, oh my god, they had this relationship and now they're dead. And more like why did I watch that? They're dead now. Like, yeah. And they like, there's only one part of that, that entire bit that I think that's like worth it. Or like, it's a good addition, which I don't think was in the director's cut of the original, um, where the gang members basically find out, um, they, uh, they think they like, they end up going to, um, the original night owls. Oh, that place. was in the director's cut. That was in the director's sure, cut. Cause that's from the comic. And that was one of the things that got left out of the movie for time reasons. Mm-hmm. But it, that was like the big. That was actually in the trailer for the director's cut DVD. Okay. Like, to like sh- wink to the comics fans, like, hey, this thing you complained about, we actually did shoot it, and it's going back in. Yeah. So yeah, they basically find out where um, Hollis Mason. Ho- lives. Hollis Mason lives. He's like but, an eighty-five-year-old man. Yeah, but it wasn't even him. So he just got like completely murdered. Like he, you know, he got straight up murdered for no reason. Yeah, just because so, he has a name association with the other night owl. Yeah, like, it's, that was really dumb. So. Yeah, uh, and the movie does it in a little bit more glorified fashion as well, where, like, in the book, they literally just kick his door down and beat him the shit out of him. Yeah. But it's, it like the Rorschach death, maybe it's more over the top, but it also has that emotional impact with the way it's edited. Yeah. Where, like, you cut from that really slow shot of mm-hmm. him, like, on the ground with his eyes wide, and the guy's in slow motion raising it. And then there's that, like, hard cut right to just him bashing him in, like, real time. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, this a real shock because it goes from that like almost like dreamlike aura of him like remembering his past to yeah. like this very quick brutal reality and then the scene just kind of ends and you're like and like that was an effectively like done moment on Zack Snyder's yeah movie. I think like I think that I think that this movie is just it, literally like every shot is beautiful like in my opinion like every shot is, is just like has I, I feel like has meaning in some way and it's really sad because like you know, Zack Snyder's gotten a lot of flack recently with all the other DC films. Oh, yeah. um, more than I think he should. Um, I think that, like, a, a lot of criticisms I, I hear is that he's just not... He's really good at action and, like, the, his type of style, but he's not good at directing. And I don't think that's true at all. Because I think Watchmen is a very fine example proving that that is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I know that a lot of his films are very like you know are based off comic books like 300 you know like uh we're like 300 uh i don't think 300 based off comic but like oh, you know it is, oh it is. is it is yeah so 300 and then like you know man of steel batman v superman um i like think most of his movies are based on comics i think the yeah. one that isn't is dawn of the dead of which the is dead. a remake of a classic yeah. movie yeah and i yeah I, I just think that he gets too much flack and um I think that Watchmen. I think Watchmen is his best film by far. I would agree with that. I like Three Hundred a lot too, but like, Watchmen does have a little bit more substance. Mm-hmm. Three Hundred is by Frank Miller, and this is like kind of like late '90s Frank Miller when he yeah. just kind of gave up on substance and just fully committed to style, mm-hmm. which is cool too. But like, I think this one's story is a little more engaging mm-hmm. than Three Hundreds. Yeah, and I think because. I know that a lot of people don't like to sit down for more, even for more than like two hours to watch a movie. Like, I wish that he made, I wouldn't have cared how long it was, like three and a half. Like I sat down and watched The Ultimate Cut three and a half hours last night. 
Like, I wish that he kind of, he took the unnecessary bits from that and just fleshed out the backstories of characters more. And that movie would have been like, it's, I already think it's a great movie, but then it would have been like, I would have had like really no problems with it. Isn't it funny that if there was a Watchmen miniseries, people would binge watch it in hours. But if it's just a movie that's over three hours long, they're like, can't do it. Yeah. It doesn't make sense it's to because me. Because it, it cl- it, it's like, I think it's the way the pacing of the story, like mm-hmm. you get these hour chunks that end and they have a pace to them. Yeah. And I think that it makes it more digestible. I think that with how big of a graphic novel Watchmen is, the Snyder's ability to execute that story in, you know, what, like two two hours, 45 minutes in the original version, director's mm-hmm. cut maybe. Like, I think that's a big accomplishment because, oh, yeah, because, yeah, you know, like... And it's a very episodic book too. Like, yeah, like I think the, I think it's like, I think I watched it last night, like by the time the opening credits finished, it was already 20 minutes in. The opening like, credits of that movie is I, brilliant. The like, first, awesome. yeah, the first... Like, the beginning of that film to the end of the opening credits is, like, amazing. Like, it's one of my, like, I love it so much. And speaking of those opening credits and the opening scene with The Unforgettable by Nat King Cole, this movie, you can tell Zack Snyder does actually really love this book. um, Because the soundtrack alone is is, is great, but it's specifically chosen, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Watchmen has a lot of musical illusions in it um, throughout either things playing on the radio in the background or specific like advertisements that reference stuff or the quotes at the end of the chapters. And this movie's got it all. It has Times Are Changing by Bob, yeah, Dylan. Bob Dylan. It's got Desolation Row being covered. Mm-hmm. It's got All Along the Watchtower, the Jimi Hendrix version. It's got um, Unforgettable, which is the exact song that's played in the advertisements on TV in the book is played on the advertisements in the beginning of the movie. It's Hallelujah plays, right? Hallelujah also yeah. plays. Um, that one, I don't, I don't remember if that was quoted in the book or not, but it works anyway. Leonard yeah. Cohen's great. Uh, and it's not the cover version. It is the original by Leonard Cohen. And then during the credits, they play Pirate Jenny by Nina Simone, mm-hmm. which is the song that inspired the Black Freighter. So even when they didn't include the Black Freighter comic, the song, one of the songs of the end credits is like a reference to the book. Yeah, I like... Because that game, that this film is sitting at like a fifty six on Metacritic, and I just don't get it. Like it's one of those films. Like normally, it's like a cult classic. I would say now. I I mean I guess because I I think I think as time has gone on, more people have liked it. It's true, but it's also weird because I remember when it came out, it got generally good reviews, mm-hmm. like generally good. But as time has gone on, it's gotten more schismed. More people have seen it, and more people have grown to love it. Mm-hmm. But then some people have gotten even more critical of it. Yeah. Through newer and newer eyes and seeing all the different versions and stuff. So it's like, it's definitely a schism that's been created. But I hope with this new show, people revisit the book and the movie. Yeah. And just refresh themselves on it. Because, yeah, I think that even though, like, the way I like to look at uh, adaptions from, you know, a book or what you know, whatever it may be to film. Like, it's just, think of it as just like an alternate version and don't think of it as an adaptation because then you're going to just always be disappointed. Like, you know, like the Harry Potter films, like they're not, um, yeah, you can't adapt a 600 page book into a two hour movie. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's just like they, they do their best and they're they're they, you know, and they obviously could have done better. There are plenty of, like, characters, especially in the last uh, half of that series. I think that was the last half was generally what, kind of rushed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, don't, don't, I don't want to go too far off. Yeah, uh, to Harry Potter, but yeah. that's a whole bag of worms. Yeah, but 
I think it's interesting about like how people feel about this sequel because like be you know because it's like you know it's not been the go-ahead by Alan Moore and like I'm sure that if Alan Moore did make a sequel um like that it would be much more different than the creative decisions that the show's making um but you know so so I, I find it fascinating because I've like met people um that when it comes to Star Wars they like either refuse to watch the new trilogy or they they would rather watch the uh prequels over the new trilogy specifically just because George Lucas literally just because he was in like directly involved, involved with it and it's and, just like and, and, even though the quality is not there comparatively um to the new trilogy with Disney like they're like nope I would rather watch these movies that um I know are not as good but they're still like they're George Lucas and it's just like that I, gotta, I, I don't know I find it fascinating I gotta send you this article dude there's some I don't agree with it at all but it is a fascinating take a real hot take from uh, I forget which publication it is I think it's the New Yorker I think it's the New Yorker but it's a critic who has no real affiliation to Star Wars he has no nostalgia for yeah. it necessarily he has um, no he has no like but love he for it. loves the prequels he thinks they're like a magnum opus really yeah and he doesn't like the original trilogy that much he doesn't mm. he thinks it's kind of like garish and overrated and cheap that's but interesting. he thinks that he thinks that the prequels were really pushing boundaries and it's like he argues it well it's just like it's such a bizarre take that you can't even like you're like is this real like are yeah. you being serious like um because i don't mind the prequels partially due to the nostalgia effect mm -hmm. i saw them very young i don't they're, hate them yeah i don't they're all right yeah yeah um i i like i enjoy watching phantom menace like i know it's not about like this thing was like, when i was a kid like i thought jar jar binks was funny you know what i mean so when i watch jar jar binks yeah. like i just think about those kids like oh that's funny but like he's yeah. a bad character you no, know what i mean yeah. but, like, and i still enjoy watching it i also i mean like the darth maul fight is it's fucking cool yeah <laughs> yeah it's really cool and then yeah. i don't i legitimately just hate the attack of the clones like i don't i like I wish I could. I, I I normally just like skip the Attack of the Clones whenever I rewatch it because you all you really need to know is that Anakin got his hand cut off by Dooku. And there's a clone army now. There's a clone army troopers. now, and Anakin and Padme got married in secret. Yeah, that's all and you the need other to know. Thing, like, there's like three scenes you can watch highlights on YouTube of like the action scenes. In the oh, movie. and Anakin's mom died. The action is cool. Like, there's certain scenes like I liked this the the. The uh, not even the end lightsaber fight. I like the Jango Fett fight. And yeah, I like the beginning where sure. they're running through the Blade Runner city. Sure. But other than those two moments, yeah, mm -hmm. there is not really that much to yeah. watch. But I wanted to get back to watch. We went on yeah. a Star Wars tangent, but, <laughs> um, uh, which is fine. Um, but yeah. I, I, I'm assuming, based on your opinion, that you don't agree with this. But I was going to ask it anyway. So do you think Watchmen or other works of this type should not be adapted due to their creator's intentions with it as a non-adaptable work? Um, like, uh, like his intention was to create a comic that would only be a comic. Like it could only really work as a comic. Mm -hmm. So do you, and more generally doesn't like adaptations of his work or mm -hmm. the idea of adapting art in general. He's kind of a purist in that sense, I yeah. guess you could say. And I totally respect that. Yeah. I totally respect that. It's one of those things where I think that it's, for me, like if I were, if, if, if that were me. If I made Watchmen or any sort of, you know, novel, like graphic novel or comic book uh, story that a lot of people got, uh, like, it got acclaim and stuff and people wanted to 
do their own takes on it, like make it a movie, I would be happy. Yeah, you know of what course I mean? people point out if, they're like, well, aren't the Watchmen like based on other comic book characters too? Like they're literally aping the Charlton Comics characters. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's just, I think that I I don't think the characters are what makes Watchmen so like the the thing that what makes Watchmen Watchmen. I think it's more of the the political themes yeah. and just the overall story. I think is very fascinating, and then it just is. Like, the cherry on top is the compelling characters. Sure. And, like, well, because I guess the point is, too, is that, like, Alan Moore doesn't seem to have any problem adapting things from other mediums. Like, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is all previously established literary canon Mm -hmm. characters. Watchmen, like I said, is based loosely on the Charlton Comics characters DC had bought the rights to in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, Like, The Question and Captain Adam and stuff like that. By the way, I thought it was funny. When I first bought the book as a kid, I didn't know what Alan Moore looked like. And I saw the back cover and I was like, who the fuck is that guy? He yeah. looks like a hobo. Yeah, he's he's old and he's still he's still old, so. Yeah, no, like he, uh, but. Uh, I mean, hey, he hasn't. I'm used to it now, but at the time I was like, well, he wrote this? Like, he, hasn't, he hasn't aged much since, you know, no, so. No, dude, he's like, yeah, no, he's a, uh, he, no, I find him actually a fascinating person and I have a lot of respect for him. But um, yeah, he, certain, like certain beliefs of his, I think are a little too pure. Like he said. You know, my favorite films are films that are not adaptations generally. And I'm like, that's cool for you. But, like, Stanley Kubrick, for instance, is, like, considered potentially the greatest American filmmaker who ever lived. Mm -hmm. Nearly all of his films are adapted of other works. And in most cases, maybe not with Lolita, which is, like, a perfect novel. But, like, in most cases, his films are more well-known and elevate the material they're based on. Mm -hmm. Like, The Shining is a good book. Mm -hmm. But the movie's fantastic. Clockwork yeah. Orange is a great book, and the movie's fantastic. Yeah. 2001 A Space Odyssey is a good book, but the movie's fantastic. Like, yeah. It's just like just keeps going. And so I found that um, really um, interesting, but also like I do not totally agree with him in that sense. However, I do agree with him in the sense that having like Watchmen action figures and like posters and stuff is a little ironic considering how like anti-corporate this book is. Yeah. Like how like makes a mockery of that kind of like superhero worship type stuff. I mean, I think regardless if you're, I think he know, he would know that like regardless of what he, who he and had published his Watchmen, it would have still blown up. It still would have ended up with merchandise, like unless he literally just like released it for free online, sure. you know. But he, you know, could you even imagine? <laughs> no, and that's uh, the thing I talked about earlier too. Is that um, he felt swindled because they had they had entered this agreement where he and Dave Gibbons would get the rights to the characters if DC didn't publish them for a year, mm-hmm. and they kind of figured oh, well, this book is, like, kind of dark and fucked up, so it's not going to be a big hit. Yeah. And then it totally was, and DC latched onto that. And they've never yeah. kept it out of print since, so they're never going to get the rights to it. Yeah, and I don't know if you know this, but because um, I'm a I, – I don't have the time much for it anymore, but um, for a while I was a avid comic book reader. Like, I'd go to the comic book shop every week, pick up my comics and everything. But um, recently DC – rebooted their not rebooted but like it was a soft reboot of their uh current universe and at the end of the reboot issue it te- uh, it teased the uh the watchman characters and that how they're how they have a part in the dc universe now yeah i heard about that and that was a little weird to me too i was like it was interesting because basically 
what the what the concept is is that um so there was like this uh when they actually rebooted rebooted this uh the universe it was called new 52 yeah and then they new 52 kind of flopped and people and they were like okay we need to fix this by bringing back characters that were beloved before that aren't in this universe like the original wally west and things like that sure so at the at a point but then they kept what worked right like yeah court of owls yeah 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 Yeah, no that batman's still there and everything like that Mm -hmm. um and at the end, it sh- like shows that basically, like the reason why the New Fifty Two or like the rebirth happened was because of Doctor Manhattan meddling with time. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, I heard about the Doomsday Clock thing. Yeah, and now, yeah, and like I don't know if it's still going on. I that's something like I am going to pick up and read. But uh, they they had this event called Doomsday Clock, which revolves around uh, Superman and Doctor Manhattan, which yeah. I'm super excited to. It came out a couple of years ago, but I haven't read it either. Yeah, so it started out. It started out as a monthly series, and then it got delayed to a. It got switched to a bi-monthly, so it was every two months one issue came out. Oof. So it was like, yeah. But Jeff Johns wrote it, and he's like one of DC's best writers. Um, so um, I trust that it's going to be good. I hope. Um, I'm gonna. Yeah, I need to actually see after this if that's out because I definitely want to read it. Yeah, and then um, there is one other thing that's been Watchmen related, which is the Before Watchmen series. I've only read yeah, one issue really, of that. Never. I've heard Minutemen by Darwin Cook is good because Darwin Cook was a great, talented mm-hmm. artist and writer. I read The Comedian and Rorschach, and, and The Comedian I didn't mind that much. It was pretty well written. It had some interesting lore, like the comedian killing Marilyn Monroe with an overdose because of Jackie O telling him to. But it also took away a lot of his menace. It made it so that he didn't kill JFK, which is heavily implied in the yeah. book and the and it's just it, outright no, it's stri- in the yeah, movie. it's outright shown in the movie. Um, and then, um, but they don't really. But he did kill but, RFK, I guess. Yeah, but they didn't explain that in the movie either. No, that's like another thing where the montage is fantastic, but it really only works if you're semi familiar. Yeah, if you're semi familiar with the um, source material. Yeah. yeah. I kind of got the story, though. It's like, okay, superheroes exist, but they're falling apart. Mm-hmm. Like, even as a kid, I'm like, okay, superheroes exist. Okay, oh, no, they're being thrown in mental yeah. asylums. And, and I, think it's, I think it's a fascinating, like, what if, because, like, you know, Nixon gets... This is, like, a uh, a world where there wasn't uh, an amendment where presidents can only have two terms. So, you know, and Nixon doesn't um, quit. So yeah, no, there's no Watergate. There's because, no, yeah, there's no Watergate. Uh, and they imply that the comedians at a party and they're like, Hey, uh, Eddie, uh, did you see those two reporters they found in that garage? The, the, the garage where Woodward and Bernstein met the deep throat contact mm-hmm. in this universe. That was Eddie Blake, who was a setup and he kills them to prevent them from exposing Watergate. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, I don't know anything about that. Fellas. Just don't ask me where I was during JFK. Okay. Yeah. Like, so why does he kill JFK in the, in the movie, I think it's because Nixon... I mean, in the, the story, I think it was because JFK was getting too close to, like, civil rights activism. Oh, okay. And I think because Nixon was still pissed about losing to him. Oh, okay. So, um, like... Okay, so he, he was and basically... And crisis and everything. So he was basically under Nixon's belt the entire time. Exactly. Okay. Like, Nixon is so much more sinister and competent than he actually was in real life, mm-hmm. as, as bad of a guy as Nixon is. Mm-hmm. He's way more of a competent manipulator in uh, Watchmen's universe, but... um. That's part of the alternate timeline, I guess, too. But uh, so the thing about the before Watchmen is Brian Azzarello wrote that one. And that was Oh, yeah, he's a good writer. But then he wrote the Rorschach one. And the Rorschach one is just complete filler garbage. Like, it's not. Mm. The art is good, but the story is not. There's nothing there. You learn nothing about Rorschach. In fact, there's a point in it where he has, like, a crush on a waitress. And I'm like, this is so fundamentally not 
understanding what Rory, like you're trying to make him too likable because he's like this beloved yeah. character now. Yeah, no. Um, so uh, so I, I didn't love it, and then I never picked up another issue. But I've heard the Silk Spectre one is good because mm-hmm. Darwin Cook wrote that as well, co-wrote it. Yeah. Uh, even though he really didn't want to, but he made it like he made it work, even though Silk Spectre is like of the main characters, probably the least developed, but also yeah, the she's, least fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> she's definitely like the least interesting. Oh, I think the original Silk Spectre is interesting. I don't think yeah. I don't think Silk Spectre 2 is very interesting. I she doesn't get all that interesting until that like chapter nine when you learn more about her past and shit. Yeah. And like that part is really interesting to me. Yeah, like when you find out that like, you know, the comedian's um her, her dad and yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, like that shit's crazy. That like Which, was so unexpected. When I was watching when I it that. the like maybe when i first watched it i remember being like oh my god oh my god but like this time around when i watched it last night i was like dang they they were not subtle about like hiding oh, that hiding that in the movie yeah like if you have the the, he, the inkling of like being a little bit able to connect dots yeah like, like they show it's pretty flashbacks. it's pretty obvious in like beforehand if you watch it like closely yeah yeah you know if you're you know if you're like in high school like up to that education level like if you, you watch this movie, you, you can put it together pretty quickly that the comedian is, uh, you know, Silk Spectre's uh, two's father. Which so. is also, like, the opposite, because, like, in the book, it's really out of nowhere. Like, you almost get no inkling about it beforehand, mm. other than they both have a beauty mark, like a mole. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, well, I mean, that's actually her mom, but the fact that she has brunette hair, like, mm. and her mom doesn't, mm-hmm. that's the part that really gives Cause, it away. Yeah, because she was, like, a redhead, right? So it's, yeah. Yeah. And then um, you do get some hints, like, when he's, like, talking to her outside. And, like, that's a flash. That's shown earlier beforehand. But um, there is a, the, the only implication you get is the fact that, that Sally Jupiter doesn't hate him anymore, which is really weird. Because in every flashback we see, the roles are reversed. Which is that Silk Spectre doesn't hate him, but her daughter hates him. Yeah. And in previous flashbacks, her daughter used to think he was a pretty cool dude, but she really didn't like him, but wouldn't explain why. Yeah. And we find it was because he was a bad person and he attempted to rape her at one point. Yeah. But we also later learned there was some sort of a weird thing where they later got back together and had an affair mm-hmm. and she had Silk Spectre too as her child. Yeah. And then like, she was like, you know, I'm not mad at him because he gave me you like, you know, that yeah, type of thing. But she still was when she was a kid, like she didn't want him around and didn't want him to be involved in her life at all. And he really wasn't. He like kept his distance. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I'm, I mean, but that's also one of the uh, fascinating things about him as a character. Cause he is undoubtedly the worst character in Watchmen. I think he's um, like, I love like Rorschach is definitely my favorite, but the comedian is definitely the most fascinating character. I think oh, no, in, that's in what the I entire... mean. he's the, he's the most no, I meant more like he's the worst in-universe. Oh, yeah, no, he's a horrible, like, human being, for sure. But then, like, they add in that thing of him, like, actually kind of wanting to bond with his daughter and, like, yeah. care about her. And, like, he doesn't freak out at her when she throws a drink in his face because he's, like, he actually seems kind of hurt that she hates him so much. Yeah, and she probably, and he probably also sees a lot of him in her as well. Yeah, and that's, like, it's, and it's implied at the end when her and Dan become superheroes again. Yeah. She mentions something about having a gun and, like, a more leathery outfit, which mm-hmm. is also what he used to wear. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, so fascinating to me. And I guess in the new show, she takes on his mannerisms a lot more and takes more of his, like, Yeah, I heard she's outlook. amazing in the show. Like, I yeah. heard, like, that that episode where she gets introduced is, like... Ama- like amazing like one of the best episodes of television in a long time like wow, i gotta check this out oh yeah i definitely want to go home and watch it but yeah so we've been we've been going for about an hour i'd say but um 
did you have anything else you kind of wanted to say any any more i i think that we i think we should talk more about the comedian because i think the comedian oh, really? like yeah because i uh because that, that's actually what i was like uh really wanting to talk about because oh cool i All think right. that i think that the film does a really good job at like i don't i don't, I don't know if um the graphic novel is similar because again it's been a long time but um how they at the end of the day like everything still revolves around him like whether it be yeah. like you forget he's dead wh- like he's yeah. such a vivid character that you forget like oh yeah he's dead before the book or the mm-hmm. movie begins yeah or at the beginning of the movie and like whether it be like just him and his actions or like how his influence like indirectly affects characters like and even that's probably why his 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 icon has become the, the official logo of the series mm-hmm. which is also the doomsday clock yeah oh similarly yeah yeah it's like the, meta, there... the symbolism of the 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 streak and the eye and it forms that like 15 minutes to midnight look mm-hmm. but it's also a uh it's just yeah you're right he is almost the central character yeah because yeah because like when he dies he's like you know it's all a joke and then like even by the end of the, by then the movie Night Owls also like, you know this like basically exactly what the comedian said in the beginning like this is all a joke like this is like life is a joke, you know and he did like he didn't get really get that from the, he got it from the comedian but not like in the way that you would expect. Yeah, and the comedian is sort of. Um... And the like, way he says it too, like in the book, he repeatedly when he's talking to Moloch, remember he visits him drunk, and like that's where you get the inkling that there's like this larger conspiracy going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he keeps calling it a gag, like whatever the plan is, he keeps calling it a gag, like this unusual euphemism he's using. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it shows how deeply ingrained that philosophy is into him. Like even a plan so horrible that it makes him go fucking crazy and question everything he's ever thought in his life. He still kind of refers to it like it's a big joke. Like, yeah. Ozymandias is about to play the biggest prank on New York City. Like, Blake understood. Treated it like a joke, but he understood. He saw the true face of the 20th century and chose to become a reflection, a parody of it. No one else saw the joke. That's why he was lonely. Yeah, and... and... Like, I think, I, I see the comedian as, like, I see, I see, like, Rorschach and comedian as, like, two different ends of the spectrum, of a spectrum, yeah. where, like, they're both, like, bad people, quote-unquote, um, but the way that they act are just completely different. Like, comedian is very just upfront and ruthless, in in that and sense, like cocky. While yeah, and cocky about it, and like he has like no shame whatsoever. Um, while Rorschach is just um, a lot more radical. Yeah. But he, and he does it in ways that aren't as upfront. He's a lot more like you know he's in the shadows like that type of thing. While like comedian will just like straight up like in front of your face fuck you up you know what i mean and then yeah like but rorschach tries to take a more like strategic approach to things well yeah because he's also quite smaller like Mm -hmm. the comedian is described as being like in crazy good shape he's like a linebacker linebacker. yeah yeah rorschach is a tiny little scrappy guy he's like five foot seven with elevator even even then though like the scene where he gets um he gets um 
baited into going to Moloch's place. Yeah, the house thing. And, like, and he uh, fights all the police officers yeah. using the can and the lighter as a flame. Like, that's so clever. That was such a cool scene. That's a, such a cool moment. Like, Yeah, and that's like in the book it's even more prolonged and it gets really crazy. Like he employs all sorts of shit into it. Like he – it's really brutal, actually. It made me cringe when I first read it as a kid. Mm-hmm. But uh, some cop finds him hiding in the closet, like, doing a sweep of the house. And he has this grappling hook that he uses to get on buildings. And yeah. he fires it into his chest at point-blank range. Like, Damn. just like anything he can get his hands on to just win as quickly as possible. But yeah. what I do find interesting, too, is that the comedian, as as bad as a person he is, he like you said, he's up front, but also about his philosophy. He has no qualms about who he is. He just mm-hmm. doesn't think that it matters. Yeah. Rorschach is able to convince himself that he is in, like, some moral high ground. Mm-hmm. So he has to do the gymnastics. Because of his convictions, he has to convince himself that he is correct. Yeah. But the comedian really has no convictions, so he doesn't care. He just he does just, what he does, and he, he doesn't care. He just admits to being a piece of shit yeah. up until the end of his life when he begins to question his his whole existence. Yeah. Uh, which when he, is really pathetic and sad because it's like, wow, he knew he was going to die alone and that perhaps the way he's lived his life is not right. Yeah, because when, fi- like, when he found out about um, Adrian's plan and everything like that, and which is, you know, why Adrian kill- kills him, uh, which I don't think he, I don't think comedian, uh, like, I don't think he knew that um, that was going to happen. Like, he didn't know that Adrian found out that he knew about his plan. Yeah, no, totally not. Otherwise, but, he probably wouldn't be mounted But he, that. like, knew that... Like he, uh, he kind of like just saw the writing on the wall and stuff like that, which well, uh, yeah. he knew he knew that this plan was so big that somebody was going to be coming gunning for him. Like yeah, like somebody knew he found out. Yeah, but also that like it was just so big that he's like, there's nothing I can do to stop him. Mm-hmm. Like he's already got it in motion. Yeah, like he's so it, this guy's so smart that he has things set up so that Doctor Manhattan can't read the fucking future anymore. Yeah, he's yeah he's the smartest man in the world. Yeah. You know, so. I talked about that a little bit earlier, like how he's almost a parody of the whole Bruce Wayne type where he's like perfect specimen of human health, brilliant mind, also a philanthropist who like believes in humanity's inherent good. Um, Super speed, basically. (laughs) He's a lot faster than most people. But also uh, in that, in the way that Moore is twisting these tropes, he's taking someone who you would imagine is like... Like, but uh, in real life, like, someone like Bruce Wayne would be, you would fear him because he has too much power and mm-hmm. he's, and his views are extreme. Like yeah. he believes the best way to go about doing these things is through violence. Yeah. Like, even though he claims to be a pacifist and empathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All these characters, like all these characters are just a bunch of hypocrites at the end of the day. They're yeah. all just hypocrites. Like even, they even imply a little bit like, you know how Dr. Manhattan is growing uh, the whole point of his character is like Superman is growing further away from humanity. Mm-hmm. But also there's these little hints that perhaps he was antisocial before he became Dr. Manhattan too. In the book, he mentions that like, oh, a, a woman's never bought a beer for me before. Mm-hmm. Uh, back at Princeton, they'd invite me out, but I, I just wanted to focus on my studies and stuff um, to work hard and become a, a scientist. So it's possible, it's also implying that maybe these newfound abilities are also just the perfect out to be like, oh, fuck off, everybody. I'm going to go do my own thing. I don't need to be around you people anymore. Um, It's like just these little moments that you're like, like, oh, dude, of all the people to become an all-powerful god, it had to be the socially awkward, like, science guy Mm -hmm. that, like, doesn't understand people or relationships. But I feel like that's the only way that would work for something like this. No, it totally would because... Otherwise, how would he reconstruct his whole body? Like, yeah. How would he know how to do that? Yeah, and as well as just, like, 
going literally just deciding to do whatever he wants yeah and no no one can stop him yeah so yeah and that's like a perfect thing too but also he's like humanity may be ants to him but he's also not a a monster like he doesn't use it to his advantage he just is kind of apathetic yeah he just wants to leave and go do his own thing he doesn't want to like kill people yeah he's he's apathetic and like his entire mentality is just through logical means. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think about emo like he, you know, he doesn't think about emotions. But like he still, it like is emotional. It's just you know that they they have that part in uh, the movie where they basically exp, exp, uh, how um, I think it's I think it's Adrian how Adrian like could tell by his emotions even though it looked like he was just emotionless mm-hmm. that he was just able to tell like that he was just miserable yeah it, it's just kind of like that idea that being all-knowing all-powerful like isn't what anyone wants yes yeah, another thing too is people criticize billy crudup in the movie for being too emotional but i'm like dr manhattan shows emotions all the time in the book they're just really subdued and subtle yeah but he has them he just is slowly growing to like look past them but yeah. he has them undoubtedly yeah, one one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that um if you haven't watched Watchmen, you should one hundred percent watch Watchmen. Uh, the director's cut specifically. Uh, and then if you haven't read the graphic novel, you 100,000% need to read the graphic novel. Um, yeah, man. I mean, it's a towering book. I mean, there's a couple books that I would... It's one of those works I feel that is that is actually beyond its own medium. It elevates. It's like you tell people who don't watch anime, you got to watch Cowboy Bebop. Yeah. You tell people who don't read comics, you got to read Watchmen and you got to read Mouse. Those are two must-reads. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you think superheroes or comic books are stupid, like those are like they'll change your mind (laughs) yeah 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 like yeah just yeah same thing with like batman like if you haven't read a batman comic like everyone should read at least read the long halloween yeah or the dark knight returns uh dark knight returns the killing joke which is another alan moore book oh yeah alan moore Um, i was talking about this earlier too he is like i mean he has absolutely he is one of the the most amazing writers writers, in general like does he does he write books like he like, wrote know. a novel recently i do remember that oh really do you know how well it did or um one sec. um i remember i think it did pretty good okay that's cool yeah i because i think, I think, I think that he oh i think he, yeah he like we said before he's a fascinating character he's a fascinating human being um yeah. i would love to like just kind of sit down and have lunch with him because i feel like <laughs> i feel like he's really like I don't know when I see his face and then I hear what he has to say about things like recently, like how he's talking about superhero movies. Oh, I, yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I did. Um, how I, 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 when I see him and when I hear him say things like that, like I just think, man, that guy like sounds like a complete dick. Like, you know what I mean? But I think he would, I think it'd be a really intriguing conversation to have with him. Like, about really anything. He's actually a very well-rounded person. I've listened to him on podcasts talk about like, geometry and its relationship to the occult and how he may put work that into his book from hell Mm -hmm. and like uh you know all these different influences he has he's very fascinating person he has a cool voice too actually but yeah so yeah 100 watch watchmen like 
watch the movie, read the graphic novel. When you're done, check out the show because I've heard I personally have heard nothing but good things. So, um, but yeah, uh, Watchmen is like it's one of those things. Like I feel like Watchmen should be something that everyone has to read in like high school or college or something like that. Yeah, I feel I, like it's just one of those. It's one of those books that's like. Maybe college, because I remember reading it in high school on my own terms and liking it a lot. But as I've read it, as I got older, I have gotten much more out of it. Yeah. I can appreciate a lot more of the depth that goes into yeah. it. Like, yeah, I would probably say definitely more like college. Like, I think that it's one of those – it's just one of those books that everyone should read, regardless of whether or not you like superheroes. Because there's so much more – isn't so much more than just a superhero story. Oh, for sure. It's like, it's the humans behind the masks and, you know, just like these, the, again, the political themes and war themes that are throughout and just like just general life themes that you've, that's never like really been displayed in that, in, in that, in this medium of graphic novels or comic books. So. Okay. So. Um, well, thank you for your time, Cameron. Thanks no for coming by. That's again at the Cinephile Guy on Twitter, Instagram, pretty yeah, much Twitter, everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, primarily um, Twitter. Yeah, and um, you write for Dual Shockers, right? Yeah, DualShockers.com. It's a video game website. All right, visit his Dual Shockers page for all of his articles, all of his hot takes. Um, uh, this has been Matt, um, your general host for Bowling for Coup, the third episode. Um, Sal and David will rejoin us on the next one, but they were busy. So I figured why not, why not mix it up a bit, go with a new format, new guest. But, um, anyway, thanks for everyone for listening. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Bowling for Coup, and I hope to catch you next time. Like a song of love that clings to me. How the thought of you does things to me Never before Has someone been more Unforgettable